pussy is abandoned. You know, like if I don't say it, who will? You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Maninowski. To poet and queer icon Eileen Miles, women have always operated on the margins, on the outside, in the shadows. Women are invisible, and certainly their genitalia are invisible. And so they're not part of human poetics. They're not part of, you know, you know, the male canon. In 2017, Miles was interviewed by Danish poet Mette Mostrup and talked about normalizing the space for queer positions. Welcome to my world. These are the terms of it. I'm not writing about being gay or about being a lesbian or about being genderqueer or trans or whatever. It just is the state of things here. But first, Eileen had some very frank thoughts on their love-hate relationship to writing under the influence of drugs and alcohol. If it doesn't kill you, it will teach you a lot. You know, and I learned a lot from drugs and alcohol, every bit of it, you know, and, and, but the thing that's so interesting is when something leaves your space, whether it's a drug or a lover or a parent, it's sort of like there's this gap and you think you'll never be able to, you know, get in your boat and go from here to there, that there's, there's no there there and you're kind of like, and then the gap closes. You know, like if, if you just kind of hang in however, you know, the gap always closes and then you're someplace else and you are on the other side and this is a new place and, and you can function and, 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 and row and do, ever, do, whatever, do whatever you do there. I mean, I think part of what was so great, like say acid, I loved acid. I mean, acid was perhaps amphetamines, acid, I don't know which one I liked the most. I liked hangovers, like not the pain of the hangover, but when you before my drinking was really, really bad, when it was sort of like I would get good and drunk and I would wake up in the morning and I would just be like, you know, like in that altered state. And then you'd have a cup of coffee, maybe a little bit of sugar, and you'd get really high and you'd be really crazy for about an hour or two. And it was when I was still working jobs and I would just write great poems in that state, you know? So it's just like there were, there were like things that were about the effect of drugs on my um, chemistry that were sort of marvelous for a while until it wasn't marvelous. But acid, for example, taught me like that you know, you'd be tripping in a bar, you know, with someone and, and, and you'd be like, look at that guy. And there'll be a guy lying, standing against the wall. But somehow in the state that I was in, it would look like he had roots all over him. Like he looked like a tree. And then suddenly I started to look at him and he was covered in roots. And then he came forward and he would smile and it was like the tree had come out, out of the wall and we were like dying laughing like this tree is suddenly and suddenly he was a guy that was sort of trying to hit on these two girls which was me and my girlfriend you know and it was just like we would just our perceptions like somebody would go like that and they said did you see that and I was like no and I said do it again and I was like oh yeah you know and it was just what I learned was that you know like there were just all these it seemed like there were all these realities next to each other and behind each other. And indeed, it's true. You know, in time, in, in the speed of time and in the slowness of time. And, and, you know, when somebody tells you a story and you're like, and then suddenly you're like, oh, I see where they're going. And you like fall into that story and it becomes a whole other world. So there was a way in which I, I started to understand something when I did drugs, which made reality 
really understandable when I no, no longer did drugs. I started to understand that, that you, if you hang into any state, you'll start to understand its dimension, its inventory, what it has, and start to understand how to operate there and how to make art there. And, you know, it's so interesting because now, you know, like, so I am good at writing about altered states, many of which, you know, like, I, I still encounter. And when I look at other people's writing, it's so interesting. I mean, like there's, a, there's a, a Native American writer named James Welch, and he wrote a, a, a short novel called, I think, The Winter, Winter of the Blood. Uh, it's a very short novel about alcoholism, but he writes about hangovers as an altered state, and it's so, he was a poet too, and it's so beautiful. Like he really gets it. Whereas a writer like Jonathan Franzen, who, you know, he's not a bad writer. He's like a, a narrative writer. He certainly is, you know, skillful. But one of his characters in one of his books, um, it was like a, a, a father who was taking drugs and like, you know, like for whatever, you know, health reasons. And, and he started to kind of freak out. And the whole passage was describing what his freaking out was like. And Jonathan Franzen couldn't do it. He could not narrate, narrate an altered state. And I think that like poetry um, and, and all the altered consciousnesses that I've ever experienced, you know, like really, really kind of, I mean, they prepare you to die, you know? They prepare you to lose things. They prepare you for falling in love, you know, because it's sort of like, how do I, how do I take this in? You know, like how do you suddenly have a feeling and you think, oh, this is not a good person. And it's like, what do you do with that perception? I mean, I, I, I just think that like, there's, there's no loss that doesn't have something on the other side of it. And some things like life, we don't know what's on the other side of this, you know? And my mother died in April and it was like, it was so crucial to be able to stay, stay with that. There were several years that she was dying and, and I was there for every bit of it. And it just was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life, you know? And, and so, it, it's enabled me to let go of her. Ugly nightmare, eating too much, dunking your head in water over and over again. Feel bad for your kid, all of them. But most of all, us. Bad nights when I was young and drinking, predatory men with swollen heads would buy me drinks and want to fuck me again and again because I was nothing to them, and he is our president now. Wow. If you ask me what was more political, presidents or pussies, there's only one answer, pussies. Um, because because it's, it's a censored word. It's, it's like, it's an innocent word, it's a playful word, it's a childlike word for female genitalia. And you would think there was something criminal about that, that we can watch so much media about dead women, um, violence against women, um, you know, so much, so much um, stress around women having control over their bodies, abortion, health issues. In the United States, we cut women's health enormously. We, we cut, you know, Planned Parenthood, the organization that, that has more to do with the health of women than any other organization in America. And, and, and yet somehow, I mean, it's just like pussy just represents just an assertion that female reality is, is a human reality, is central. Hmm. to our tribe. It's sort of when, when, I mean, it was so funny, like in, in Congress, when they were going over this health care bill, um, they were like, well, is it, I mean, like that they didn't really, they were, were trying to suggest that pregnancy wasn't, um, 
central to, to human health, that, that pregnancy was like a pre-existing condition, that pregnancy wasn't a genuine emergency, it, it shouldn't, that it shouldn't be necessarily covered. And, and, the few, and women were banned from being on that panel you know, in Congress. There were no women speaking for these decisions. And so women in Congress were like, wait a second, like, how did you get here? How did you get here if you think pregnancy is not a, a necessary part of the human condition? And was there some other entrance to this room? And so I think I think it's just, just that kind of thinking, and just that you know, like, and, and you know, I mean, I, whenever I've been someplace where, say, Tampax is free, is part of what is in the bathroom, I think, well, that's a culture that's acknowledging that this is a human fact that that women bleed, that menstruation is is simply. No, as real as toilet paper, mm. you know? And again, it's sort of like the removal of that from dailiness is, is, is what's really violent and stupid and crazy and, and, and political, deeply, deeply political. Again, I mean, it just because, because women are invisible and certainly their genitalia are invisible. And so they're not part of human poetics. They're not part of, they're not part of um, you know, you know, the male canon of, I mean, of a woman, you know, like a woman is this thing, this chimera, this thing that's changing all the time. It's like the avant-garde symbol, the naked woman playing chess with Marcel Duchamp, you know, but somehow her pussy isn't, you know, it's sort of like, it's just like a target, you know, it's just like a hallway, you know, I mean, I have a line someplace, I never thought I'd function, function as a lane for someone else's desires, but it strikes me as a very vaginal line. You know, I mean, I just feel like it's sort of like because I'm female, you know, like I think it, it is part of how I organize things, you know, putting my own genitals front and center, you know. I mean, it's, it's not that I, quote, want to be talking about it all the time. It's just that the pussy is, ab the pussy is abandoned, you know, like if I don't say it, who will, you know. I mean, so even, you know, the other night I, I wrote this poem and I was like, why are there three cunts in this poem? How did that happen, you know? And it just, it's kind of like, it's like the sound is just kind of like, you know, like it's just running through my body as a, as a sort of a necessity, you know? More than half the people on my planet are slaves because they are female, it's true. We get pushed around, we don't know how to fight. Or if we do, we're called bitches, which is an angry dog. It's somehow dirtier than a dog, a bitch in heat. And if you talk about it, people say, oh, are you a feminist? Which means, are you whiny and out of date? Are you a loser? Don't talk about it. Everything will be really okay if you don't talk about it. There aren't as many rich and famous women or female artists because their work isn't good enough. And if you talk about it, your work is probably not good enough either. So don't talk about it. It sounds like a witch hunt to me. It takes one to know one, bitch. A whiny, complaining female artist, ugh, wow. Thank you, thank God I'm too successful to talk about that. I'm one of the few women who are taken seriously. The other thing that happens if you complain is they think you're a lesbian. Who's that angry, complaining lesbian? Ever get yelled at in the street by a man? You, you, lesbian. Everyone laughs, just the words dyke is funny and you are a lesbian, which ruins everything. No one can take it seriously now. No one even wants to hear about it. Some people get off on it. The girls are fooling around with each other's pussy till a man comes around. Climax. But if a man never comes around, what do they do? Just fool around with each other's pussies forever? 
What do you think God looks like? Will I know when I die? Will God know I'm major, whatever I am? Can I trust in that love coming down the pike, getting larger and larger till I come silently into the moment I'm standing in? The New Yorker, for example, I think I was not the only person who was shocked when there was a piece of fiction by a man in which he shot a wad in a woman's face. And I regarded that as a sort of pornographic, shocking gesture, you know? And, and yet I have never seen any, any graphic, say, a graphic lesbian scene in The New Yorker, no. you know? I've never seen anything remotely like that, you know, like coming from another sexual position, you know? So I thought, wow, I could, I mean, like it's sort of, you don't have to, that could be something exciting for either one of those two people, probably, probably more exciting for the man than the woman. But, um, but, but it, it just, it strikes me that, that um, you know, there's just, there's just there's no, there's no equivalency and there's no suggestion that there's anything uncomfortable making about that sexuality. That's human sexuality. Yes. It's like, if this is a normal thing to see, if we see this in porn all the time, if this is something people are doing the privacy of their homes or in, you know, special public spaces, um, that's human. And so the New Yorker will be there, you know? But there's so many ways in which my humanity has never been there, you know? And, and that sends a really loud message. So I think that like what I, what I want to do all the time is, is normalize, it, normalize my position by acting like it's in the world, maybe even more than it's in the world. You know, it's sort of like if somebody picks up a book of mine, I, I just want it to be that welcome to my world. These are the terms of it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not writing about being gay or about being a lesbian or about being genderqueer or trans or whatever. It just is the state of things here. And so you will have to, you will, in the same way that you're walking down the street and there's a person who looks like, who looks like that. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to knock them over. You're going to act like they're not. I mean, like in, in the democracy in which I live, I want it to be just the state of things. You know. And so the only thing, work has to be utopian. I mean, that's a requirement for me. It, it's, it's like I, what I get to do as an artist is start creating the world I want to live in. All the blankets are mine this time. Even the sounds which the blankets are made up of, those birds are singing this morning of thee, me, and you can have it, but I happen to be here somehow. Adulthood yuck is so firsthand. I come from a hockey town. It's where I was born. The amount of water I was born near, but nothing about me. Everyone was just skating. The poet must steal some fire, he said, and then he will steal it from her. I closed the book. It wasn't what I had in mind. Becoming a poet, at least for me, was sort of a default position, you know, because it, it, from earliest, I felt like a very ambitious child. <laughs> You know, like I wanted everything. I wanted something. I wanted, you know, like I love my parents, but they felt like they seemed like disappointed people. And early on, I decided that was because they had not made decisions. They had not decided what it was that they wanted and made sure that happened. And I thought, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to make decisions and I'm going to make this thing happen. But the problem was I couldn't stop making decisions. You know, like when I was young, I thought, well, I think I want to be this kind of you know, scientist, or I want to write, you know, I go on a comic strip, or I think I'll be a journalist, I'll be, you know, it was just like, right up until, you know, some piece of the 20s, I was just always deciding, and then becoming very excited by my decision, and then, and then not taking any steps and making another decision, you know, and so, but the thing was, as all that was going on, I was writing poems, I just wasn't noticing, because that didn't seem like an important part of my existence, and so someplace 
in there, I was, you know, I was sitting at work one day. I mean, I've written about it. I was sitting at work at a publishing company, low, very low level job, and I had an electric and typewriter in front of me. It was in the 70s. And, and I wrote a poem, and I knew it was good. And suddenly I was like, ha, huh, what if this, the poem is real, and all this is not? You know, like, what if this is the job? You know, and it was just like, that feeling was so, I, because what I started to notice was that everywhere I was in these crappy post-college jobs, what was happening, the through line was poetry. That's what was happening every place, you know? And so suddenly I just, and I think I, that kind of decision is the only kind of decision I can make, which is to actually look at what's actually going on and put my money on that, you know? And poetry was that. Poetry was the thing that was happening. I think language is sacred. I think all language is holy, you know? It's just a strange peop thing that people do that make them separate and closer to life. So it's like a complicated gesture. And I think the, one of the funniest things I ever saw was when I went, I was at an artist colony in McDowell, and I went into a book, to a drugstore in town, and they had a book rack, and I walked up to the book rack, and I suddenly realized it was a Christian book rack. It's very conservative, crazy religious books on the rack, and I was like, what kind of bookstore, what kind of drugstore is this? And, and there was one book right there that was called The Blood of the Lamb. I started reading about Lucifer, and they said that Lucifer was one of the great angels of heaven, but he got thrown out of heaven because he changed the order of the sacred words. And I thought, that is so interesting, because all a poem is is changing the order. I mean, we don't make, I mean, to some extent, we might make up new words, but basically we're dealing with what there is, you know? And, and, and that order is, is interminably shifting, you know? And I think that's what we're doing, you know? We're saying, okay, I see this world, and what if you do this and put this down here and put that there? And like, how about that pattern? You know, like what about putting pussy here instead of down here? What, what does that feel like, you know? And it's just like every time, that's, that's a profane act to change the order, you know? And that's what we must do. I hopped on an Amtrak to New York in the early 70s and I guess you could say my hidden ears began. I thought, well, I'll be a poet. What could be more foolish and obscure? I became a lesbian. You can laugh at that. <laughs> Every woman in my family looks like a dyke, but it's really stepping off the flag when you become one. <laughs> well, holding this ignominious pose, I have seen and I have learned, and I'm beginning to think there's no escaping history. A woman I was currently having an affair with said, you know, you look like a Kennedy. I felt the blood rising in my cheeks. People have always laughed at my Boston accent, confusing lodge for lodge, party for party. But when this unsuspecting woman evoked for the first time my family name, I knew the jig was up. Yes, I am a Kennedy. My efforts to remain obscure have not served me well. Starting as a humble poet, I quickly climbed to the top of my profession, assuming a position of leadership and honor. It is right that a woman should call me out now. Yes, I am a Kennedy, and I await your orders. You are the new Americans. The homeless are wandering the streets of our nation's greatest city. Homeless men with AIDS are among them. Is that right, that there's no homes for the homeless, that there's no free medical help for these men and women? That they get the message as they are dying that this is not their home. And how are your teeth today? Can you afford to fix them? How high is your rent? If art is the highest and most honest form of communication of our time, and the young artist is no longer able to move here to speak to her time, Yes, I could, but that was 15 years ago. And remember, as I must, I am a Kennedy. Shouldn't we all be Kennedys? 
This nation's greatest city is home of the businessman, home of the rich artist, people with beautiful teeth who are not on the streets. Which, what should we do about this dilemma? Listen, I have been educated. I've learned about Western civilization. Do you know what the message of Western civilization is? I am alone. Am I alone today? I don't think so. Am I the only one with bleeding gums here today? Am I the only homosexual in this room? Am I the only one whose friends have died, are dying now? And my art can't be supported until it's gigantic, bigger than everyone else's, confirming the audience's feeling that they are alone, that they alone are good, deserve to buy the tickets to see this art, are working, are healthy, should survive, and are normal. Are you normal today? Everyone here, are we all normal? It is not normal for me to be a Kennedy, but I am no longer ashamed, no longer alone. I'm not alone today because we are all Kennedys, and I am your president. I mean... I mean, I feel like a poem in a certain way just says, I want. You know, I think a poem really is a statement of desire, you know? But, but, but all the desires, you know, and not, maybe not all of them all the time, but little bits and pieces of it, you know? And so I, I think that, like, a poem, a poem is, is um, like, my cultural mobility is there, you know? And my desire to be included is there. You know, and, and, and that just gets refracted by every kind of, every experience of language that I've had since I started writing and learning language and learning to read and learning to hear. You know, in the same way that, you know, like there are sounds that people find deeply unpleasant. You know, everybody has like, ah, styrofoam or, you know, um, chalk on the board, you know, and then there's sounds that you're drawn to. And there's, there's no explaining that. You know, like that's just like something much deeper than, and I mean, I... I Science could, could tell us sometimes genetically why certain sounds, you know. But it's like, so that's going on, and that's just beyond me. But, but certainly the first time I ever heard, you know, like heard somebody say that um, black English counts. You know what I mean? Like in the 70s, linguistics, suddenly they were like, there's such a thing as black English, eubonics. And, and this is a valid, you know, because they were starting to, look at why kids in different class backgrounds weren't learning to read. And part of it was that they were throwing out vernacular and saying, start over here with this white language that nobody around you has ever used, you know? And so I, I, when I heard that, I thought, well, why isn't the vernacular that I've learned and constructed? And I just like, I, you know, my mother was a, my mother was the children of Polish immigrants. Her first language was Polish. And so, her, her English was impeccable, and she was proud of it, and she loved slang. You know, her sexiness was how American she was and how normal she was, and, how, and, and yet her, her grandma was absolutely flawless because she wanted to be right. She was a smart woman. She was, you know, and so she just policed us, and, and, we were, and I come from a family of readers, but the people next door who were far more exciting than my family, they, they would go fishing, they would have brawls, they would chase fire trucks, they had dogs. They were just like real in a way that my family was not real. Um, you know, like they said things like bare naked and they just, they said ain't. They, they said the N-word. They just said, they, they, their whole, their English, their American English was so raw and so immediate. And, you know, to some huge extent, I wanted to talk like them because I wanted to be them and I wanted to be part of their family. Like sometimes I would say, I, I don't think I know, I don't know if I said the word actually when I was a child, but I might have because I read a lot and they would laugh at me. And so I would change my English when I hung out with them, you know? And it's just like, and that became how I talked. 
you know, when I hung out with them. You know, it's just like, I don't even know, you know, so it's just like, I feel like I cobbled a language to be in the world that I want, in the way I wanted to be it, be in it. And then later I'm hanging out with these people and they're intellectuals and these people, or I go to college and these people are, and I go to the poetry world and they all went, you know, and it's like, it just is, is evolving, um, you know, like this kind of evolving um, recipe for how to, how to, how to, how to speak in a kind of American that is mine, you know, and it just like it becomes all those places I've been, you know, and it's sort of like, and they're all, they're all available, you know, and so I think when I write a poem, I feel like I'm, I'm just writing from all of those places, and any one of them, and I think swearing is part of that too, it's just like, suddenly it's like you, you kind of want to lean in and make a certain kind of point, and I hear myself saying fuck, you know, because you know, it, it needs that, you know, and then, and it's just like, in a right away, you know that when you've said that, it means this whole bunch of people won't listen, mm. you know, and this whole bunch of people will listen, you know, and so I think what excites me is to think that what I'm presenting is a lot of codes together. Got a slice, burned the roof of my mouth, knew I would, it was delicious. I fast walked someplace, my feet were cold, but the slice built a fire in my stomach. I said, thank you to the natural elements, cold night, digestion. What is it about the January feeling past everything else? Low glowing hunger that propels me around. I may be wrong, predictable to picture you over here or us over there. It's a miracle rolling golden in the coldest month going forward and back from so much else. There wasn't even a noun around. I walked in from the snow nearing Christmas and you touched my black coat with your handsome hand and believe me, I came lit and am changed. Eileen Miles visited the Louisiana Literature Festival in 2017, where they were interviewed by Mette Mostrup. The interview was edited by Roxanne Bergeschirn Lergesen, who also co-produced the interview with Christian Lund. You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast, produced by Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstil. You can watch and listen to Hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>